isn't it? Well, <clears throat> I'm not going to speak about the red heifer or the intricacies of tabernacle typology. And uh, <clears throat> I'll follow Brother Howden and we'll read again from 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and remind ourselves of some of the basics that he has already mentioned. 1 Corinthians and chapter 3. And we'll take reading from verse 10. 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 10. According to the grace of God which is given unto me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another buildeth thereon. But let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon. For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now again, I refer to other scriptures. I think that's all that we need to take for reading at this particular stage. I'm not saying it's very significant, but... There are quite a number of very key number three chapters in in the Word of God. When we come to preach the Gospel, we are constantly referring to chapters like Romans 3 and John 3, Genesis 3, Isaiah 53, and other similar passages. It so happens that when we come to assembly life, we have a number of number three chapters that give us just key teachings, basic teachings with regard to assembly testimony. 1 Corinthians 3, 1 Timothy 3, Revelation chapter 3. This chapter that we have just been reading this afternoon gives us something of the agriculture and the architecture of assembly life. Your God's cultivated field, your God's building. Go to 1 Timothy chapter 3, and we have something of the administration of assembly life. Overseers, and deacons, and the various activities associated with the house of God. Revelation chapter 3, something of the atmosphere of assembly life. Helpful atmosphere, unhelpful atmosphere. The lethargy of Sardis, the lukewarmness of Laodicea, the loyalty of Philadelphia. So all those chapter 3's and many other passages supporting them give us some indication of basic principles of assembly testimony. I'm particularly interested this afternoon in the subject of the architecture of assembly life. Because God, as the master artificer, has set in place building blocks of assembly testimony. He has been the designer of the pattern. Just as a pattern was given for the tabernacle, pattern for the temple, a pattern for the future temple in Ezekiel 40, 48. So we have a pattern for assembly life. The Apostle Paul considered himself to be a wise master builder. He didn't come to the city of Corinth just to do a little job of this or that. He didn't come, at least in the UK, we have, we have the expression, just a handyman. He came with a sense of a pattern in his soul. He came with spiritual architecture before his mind. 
The material that he was working with, the raw material in Corinth, well, I can tell you it was less than substandard. And yet when he left that city 18 months later, by the grace and help of God, something had been built. It wasn't just cobbled together. It wasn't just thrown together. It wasn't just a mix and a muddle. He said, as a wise master builder. He said, with consummate spiritual skill, with divinely endowed understanding. He said, I laid a foundation. I built upon it. Others are still building. And I'm fascinated with this whole concept of the architecture of assembly life. It's good for young, younger believers to get into your mind firmly something, some idea, some concept of what God's pattern is. Many alternative patterns, many alternative fellowships, many different groupings are to be seen around on every side. But there is a pattern for assembly life. Sometimes we think about the love of God in connection with assembly, the grace of God, the power of God, and the operation of the Holy Spirit. But I'm impressed here with the wisdom of God. As the designer, God has put the building blocks of assembly testimony together in a way that displays his wonderful wisdom. And he has built into the architecture of assembly life a number of counter-checks and when we examine how the plan holds together, we just admire the wisdom of God, the carefulness in so many differing aspects of assembly testimony. The city of Corinth was, well, it was quite a place of architecture. I'm not talking about classical Corinth, not talking about the Corinth of the great orators and rhetoricians back in the 4th and 5th centuries B.C., that Corinth was long since gone. Corinth had a very traumatic experience. I'm talking about the city of Corinth with the Romans. There was the Achaean League that rebelled against Roman rule. And the Romans decided that they would put Corinth down once for all. And in 146 BC, a task force was sent to that city. It was burned to the ground. Nothing was left but a heap of ashes. It lay almost as a desolation for just about a hundred years. In 46 BC, Julius Caesar decided again to uh, resurrect Corinth as a fresh Roman colony. To be sure, they would still have some of the some of the relics of Greek ancient culture, but a Roman stamp would be put upon the new Julius Caesar Corinthian colony. And so in 46 BC, a new city began to be built. It was quite a place. Fresh buildings, better buildings. Some of the old streets were used. Some of the designs of the great city of Rome were now incorporated and planted upon Greek soil. And then a hundred years later still, there's another man arrived in Corinth to do his building. His name was the Apostle Paul. And in a city that was relatively fresh and new, innovative, very competitive, everybody looking for a little bit of the public space, 
And people were, businesses were exceedingly competitive and cut and thrust. It was hard to make your mark in Corinth. It had been growing now as a colony for 100 years and nearly everything was in place and had been established. But this little man came and he's going to build something new. He will build something for God. He will leave reflected in that city of Corinth a design that none of the philosophers, neither Greek nor Roman, had ever thought of. And he tells us here again, it's as a wise master builder. Dear believers, I think this afternoon here in Midland Park Conference, we could just admire the wisdom and the wealth and the worth and the wonder of assembly life and testimony. I'm only too well aware that assembly testimony is being blackmouthed in many areas. It's being discredited. It's being talked down. And people are constantly feeding us a diet. We're diminishing. We have smaller numbers. The preachers are not as good as they used to be. Things are not as progressive. Things are not as powerful. We lament many of our weaknesses, many of our deficiencies and shortcomings. Nevertheless, let us not talk ourselves into discouragement. Let us not talk ourselves into a small corner of defeat. Listen, dear believers, there's nothing on the surface of planet Earth that glorifies God as much as biblical assembly testimony. And I hope that again we will have renewed within our souls a sense of the significance of what it is to be in fellowship in a local assembly gathered to the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, one of the things that interests me, one of the aspects of divine wisdom that I particularly want to emphasize for a number of minutes this afternoon, I want to think about God's wisdom as it is portrayed in the pluralities of assembly testimony. What I mean by that is this. God has incorporated in this matter a number of pluralities. And those pluralities... They give us checks and counterchecks. They are not contradictory, they are complementary. And it's when the pluralities are observed that we can grasp something of God's wisdom in this wonderful scheme of testimony. One of the first pluralities that I want to mention is a geographical one. There is a plurality of geography in connection with assembly testimony. You just take the new... Antioch. You see, that's quite a place. Do you know anything about the ancient city of Antioch? Syrian Antioch. I'm not talking about Pisidian Antioch. Syrian Antioch, the queen of the Mediterranean, the great commercial center. An assembly there. Mm -hmm. But there has already been an assembly right down in the very hotbed of Judaism in Jerusalem, a very different city to Antioch. An assembly in the culture of Jerusalem, an assembly in the culture of Antioch. Jump across to mid-Mediterranean, an assembly in a city like Corinth. We've just been speaking about it. It's commerce, it's culture, it's corruption. All of those things, yet there's an assembly there. You move up to a military city like Philippi. You think of a, a, a maritime city like Thessalonica. 
You have moved from the continent of Asia and you're across now into Europe. You go to the grand metropolis of the empire, Rome itself, where there is a melting pot of diverse cultures, and yet in each one of those very different cities, very different locations, you take the, the, the little provincial towns, Derby, Lystra, and Iconium, where the Apostle Paul went on his so-called first missionary journey. You take the cities of the Lycus Valley, an assembly in a place called Colossae, an assembly in a place called Heropolis, an assembly in a place called Laodicea. That was the hotbed of first century witchcraft. The Phrygian, the Phrygian black magic was known right down that valley of the Lycus River. And you say, could there be an assembly there? Oh yes, there can be an assembly there. Because assembly testimony, in the plurality of its geography, it is transcultural. Can you have assemblies in America? Yes. Asia? Yes. Australia? Yes. Angola? Yes. Our brother got one amen. I'll give him another Amen. Amen! Assemblies, it doesn't matter about your culture. It doesn't matter about your city. It doesn't matter about your continent. It doesn't matter about your climate. It doesn't matter about your color. Thank God, assembly testimony works in every country. Assembly testimony works in every century. And it may well be in the first century there was an assembly at Alexandria. Certainly there was a little bit later. And if that is so, we have assembly in Asia, Europe, and Northern Africa. And God is showing us by a cross-section of geography in the first, the first century of Christianity that what he has in mind in various locations, churches, assemblies, that bear a spiritual and a scriptural similarity and they can survive and they can be for his glory in diverse cultures. I think it's great, dear brethren and sisters, to think about the internationalism of what God has, not just something confined to a city or confined to a culture or confined to a particular class of people. Thank God for the wisdom of the design that is seen in the geography of assembly testimony, the spread. Another thing that impresses me is the plurality of grace that is seen in assembly testimony. And here again is an evidence, if such were needed, of the wisdom of God. The Apostle Paul said to these believers in chapter, he says, look at your calling. Your calling. Not many mighty, not many noble, not many wise. He said, take a little look around the breaking of bread, folks. And he said, you don't have many people there from the upper echelons of the society of first century Corinth. It was a socially upward mobile society. People were all claiming competitively. He said, you haven't many. He said, some of those noble families that have a long history and have been around here. He said, not many. Of there were some. There was a man in the assembly at Corinth and he was the city chamberlain. There was another man in the assembly of Corinth and his house was big enough that the whole assembly could congregate in his house. So there were some, there were some quite wealthy members in the assembly of Corinth, but not many. 
So that there was quite a there was quite a diversity in social in social standing. There was a diversity in national Jew and Gentile, bond and free, slave and free. So he said, you just take a look at the grace of God has operated in a plurality of the different segments. And from here, and from there, and from yonder, the grace of God has brought together a collection of people in the congregational testimony, the collective testimony, the cumulative testimony. You say, but they can all be a good witness for Jesus Christ in where they live, the street where they live, the school where they go. They can, sure. They can be individual testimonies, but we are talking about the cumulative effect of collective testimony. And as I look around the assembly at Corinth and I see the plurality displayed in the grace of God in the membership of the assembly, I can see God's wisdom in that. There is going to be just an indication that God is moving on a grander scale. This, this assembly will not be sending out a it will not be sending out a middle class message. If you drive a Cadillac, you're welcome here. If you drive a BMW, if you have a university degree, you're very welcome. No kind of message, dear brethren and sisters, isn't it great to know that the wisdom of God is seen not only in the geographical distribution of testimony over various continents and countries, but in the grace of God and what the gospel has produced, taking people, regenerating them, sanctifying them, justifying them, bringing them together in the wonderful operations of the grace of God. And as I look at first, first century assembly testimony in court, there's a potpourri of diversity in that assembly. And there's not another person would dare to bring together such a diverse collection of people. But the grace of God can do it. And it works marvelously. You think of your assembly, where you're associated. I know I'm not talking your assembly. We talk about your assembly. I'm not finding fault with it. I talk about your school. I don't mean the school that you, that you own. I don't mean the school that you start. I mean the school that you attended. And when I speak about your assembly, I don't mean the assembly that belongs to you. I mean the assembly of which you're a member. Take a look at it. People that would never have met. And yet God has brought them together. He has banded them together. He has bonded them together. And just, it's all his wisdom seen in the grace of God in assembly life. You take, you take the gatherings of the assembly. There's another plurality. I know, I know that we're inclined to say to ourselves, ah, oh, we have far too many meetings. You have meetings till you... I think that six o'clock in the morning idea was a good one. That's a good... You could transport a bit of Angola to America. I'd recommend that to the good Midland Park brethren. Have a Bible teaching meeting at 6 a.m. every morning. Turn New York upside down and New Jersey inside out. You never know what still could be done. But all the different meetings. We have a meeting for remembrance. And we have gatherings for preaching the gospel. And we have gatherings for prayer. And we have gatherings to listen to these, these fellows that come and give missionary reports from strange parts of the earth. And we have gatherings for Bible teaching and for Bible exposition and for Bible study. And we have all kinds of gatherings. Would one kind of a gathering not be enough? But there's a different purpose in them all because we need to pray. And we need to make the gospel known. 
And we need to become conversant with the revelation of Scripture. And so we have teaching meetings and conferences like this. And we certainly need to keep in mind the cost that was involved that we might be saved and the precious blood that was shed and the body that was given. And God again has different meetings for different purposes all brought together within the confines of a single local assembly testimony. And if you're in the assembly, I would make a little suggestion. You come to all the meetings. You don't cherry pick. And I know it's a thing that I've mentioned often, but I say again for younger people, I know where I am. I know that I'm in a high-pressured society. I know about education. I once tried to lift a little, a little teaspoonful of it myself. I know where I am in connection with business. I was involved in business. Young believer, if you want to be anything for God, you curtail your studies to suit the assembly meetings. I expected an amen for that. And dear brother, curtail your business to allow you to be at the assembly meetings. But you say, if I miss, if I miss the prayer meeting every week, I'll get $20,000 a year more next year. You'll be $20,000 the poorer spiritually. You might get the dollars in your pocket, but getting wealth into your soul. If you have to sacrifice a career on the altar of the assembly prayer meeting, I suggest the price is too high. It isn't worth it. God has given us gatherings, not just to interrupt our timetable, not just to impose Himself and to steal our time. He has given us those gatherings because they are essential contributors to the ongoing outreach of assembly testimony. And know the different meetings for what they are, and don't treat the remembrance meeting like a prayer meeting. No. Know where you are. And the Bible reading. Don't have the Bible reading like a gospel meeting. Don't have the Bible reading like a ministry meeting. Let us grasp what each meeting is for. Let us contribute to each meeting appropriately. Let us appreciate the wisdom of the great designer in the architecture of assembly life and the building blocks that God has put in place. Well, I know you say we have too many meetings. We need them all. And may God help us to use them all for His glory and for the spiritual advantage of each other. The geography, the grace, the gathering. What are the guides? Oh, you say, that's a subject now. You say, what would you say about the wisdom of God in connection with the guides of assembly testimony? Is there any plurality? Why could we not have one man that would be the boss over the whole business? Why would assembly life not be, would it not be constructed on the pyramid pattern? With the believers in the lower layers and someone perched on the pinnacle of the pyramid, looking down on everyone else, directing every movement and every operation. No, no, God would never have that. There are overseers in the plural, elders, or if you like, presbyters, or shepherds. And in the guidance of assembly life, there is there is a plurality in the oversight. Again, the wisdom of God. I've seen many, many times, and you have seen the same, dear believers, that in the architecture of assembly life, a plurality in the presbytery has been a great countercheck. You see, different overseers have different strengths. According to some of these 
these uh, chapters that are given to us in the New Testament, there are certain features that should characterize all overseers. Good men, faithful men, irreproachable and blameless. And can I say to young believers here, be very careful in your teens and twenties. Because things that are sadly, badly messed then could cripple you for leadership for the rest of your life. I know there is such a thing as recovery. Wherever there is true repentance and restoration to the Lord and to His people is one thing and two things, but leadership is another thing. And so there needs to be care. I speak to young people tenderly. And you find a brother in oversight. One brother is very... Um, well, he, he, he's the man. He's the, the theological man. And with the help of his brethren, if there is a doctrinal problem in the assembly, they will all contribute, but they will especially look to him because he is the man that has a grasp of, of theology and ecclesiology and soteriology and eschatology and all holyology. And he, they will look to him. That is his strength. You get another man, and, uh, and he's very accessible to younger believers. And if they have a problem, they feel, oh, they can go to all of the overseers. There's a tenderness with all of the men. But this brother is particularly accessible. And they maybe don't go to the theological man, the doctrine, but they can come to, he can share it with his brethren. And the strength of one overseer compensates for the weakness, perhaps, in another overseer. And the wisdom of God is seen in the beautiful blending of a diversity and a plurality in overseers. I think, I think again, we should just appreciate, just appreciate, dear believers, as we think about the very basics, the down-to-earth basics of the heritage that we have in assembly testimony, let us cherish it. Let us cultivate it. Let us contribute to it for the glory of God, for there is absolutely nothing to be compared with it. Don't look upon assembly life as a chore. Don't look upon it as a bore. Don't look upon it as a burden to be carried, as a drudgery to be done. Oh, dear believers, let us come to the assembly gatherings as a privilege to be there for the honor of the Savior. Never miss a meeting and try, try to be in tune with heaven and with your brethren and sisters when you are there. A plurality in the gatherings, a plurality in, in the guides. Are there any other pluralities in assembly life that would reflect the wisdom of God that he has designed it so? What about having an all-men society? What about having a society for all ladies? That would be some place, wouldn't it? A Christian, a Christian ladies' community. Well, 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 well. A Christian gentleman's community. And there's a plurality in the gender, so that there are women in assembly life. There are men. There's a role for the males. There's a role for the females. They are complementary, just as in creation. God made them male and female. Male and female made he them. And the same diversity that was established in creation is now reflected in the church. Christianity doesn't reverse or cancel creation. It confirms the very principles that God already established in creation. And they are different. But you say you don't allow the women to take part. Where did you ever hear that? 
Every meeting that I have ever been at, the sisters have always taken part. I've been at many prayer meetings where the sisters take part. Not audible part. But they take part. They don't sit and sleep. Although, although if the pauses are as big as we sometimes have, maybe they could be forgiven for having a little doze. But they take part. The brethren take audible part. But the sisters are there contributing. They are equal. You say, but there's a great verse in the Bible, a great verse that has been used, used overused by evangelical feminists, that in Christ Jesus there is neither bond nor free, Jew or Gentile, male or female. We are all one. I say, there you are. You have it in black and white. Galatians 3 and verse 28. There are some people who know that verse as well as John 3.16. Galatians 3 and 28. All one in Christ. Men and women are equal. Women can preach. Women can pray publicly. Women can teach. We are all one in Christ Jesus. Isn't that a travesty of Holy Scripture? Isn't that one of, the, one of the very fine examples, the worst example of taking Scripture out of context? The context of Galatians 3 is covenant relationship with God, family relationship, sons of God by faith in Jesus Christ. And he said, as far as being a son of God is concerned, the moment that a, a lady trusts Christ, she's as much a son of God as any man that trusts the Savior. In salvation, all one, but in service. No, no. When it comes to service, there is a distinction in the genders. And all those features of true masculinity, courage, strength, wisdom, those features are seen in many sisters as well. But then they have, they have those Special feelings of tenderness, care, consideration, sensitivity. You say, but do men not have care? And are men not sensitive? Oh yes, but those particular features are predominating in women folks. And, in the men. and God has the plurality in the gen. So that in an assembly, there is a beautiful blending of the strengths of one and the other making a complementary contribution to collective testimony. And his wisdom is seen in it all. There's a plurality in the glory. Just that's very closely allied with what I've just been saying. And I just mentioned it with the briefest touch. The glories. You take the end of First Corinthians chapter 10. Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Of course, that's the primary glory that is to be seen in all our assembly meetings, the glory of God. Oh, just to get a fresh glimpse of the divine glory, the ugliness of the flesh, the obnoxious display of what pertains merely to unregenerate natural man. May God forbid, but may all our meetings be a place where there's a panoramic display of divine glory until our hearts are held in the ecstasy of worship in his presence. The glory of God just to be seen. I trust we are not losing a sense. Our brethren have been talking about reverence and dignity and something about our meetings that completely eliminates everything that is casual and everything that is sloppy. 
We live in a day when everything is being downgraded and domesticated and brought as close to ground level as it possibly can be. In some of our meetings, if they go much further, they will be a little better than a social club. People lounging about on seats and dressed as if they were in attendance at some football match or some soccer club. Well, there you have it. I needn't say anything more. Just something of a sense of the glory of God that resides in every heart and reflected in every... Then the glory of man. Oh, you see, that's not to be seen. Better cover that. Who told you that? You never cover the glory of man in the assembly. God has given a glory to man. That's why we don't cover our head. Neither with hair in our hats in the case of some of us. Because the man in the assembly displays the glory of headship. And his uncovered head shows that God put Adam at the beginning in a position of primacy and in a position of administration. Eve never got that position. And in the assembly, what God established back then in that primeval, pre-Edenic, in that pre-fall condition, it's still true in this. Man is head. You won't have any, you won't have any women who are overseers. Because man's glory is to be there as head. What about woman's glory? Well, the glory of her long hair. That's why she covers her head. Because she's displaying her glory. What is her glory? She's not the head. If she was head, she would take off her head covering and show that I am head here. But because she has the glory of helper. Oh, what a glory that is. What a position that is divinely given and her divinely given glory of helpership. She displays that glory just as the man displays his glory of headship and God displays his glory as the great author of the whole scene of perfect order. So that every assembly meeting that we come into, there is not only a plurality in the genders, but there's a plurality of the glories that are all being displayed. And every word we speak, and every scripture we read, and every message we deliver, it's all radiating the glory of the blessed Savior, whose all-eclipsing person fills the heart of every true believer with ecstasy and satisfaction. There's a plurality of the glories. You know, I probably should say just briefly with that because it all ties in to just what I'm saying. There's a plurality in the groups. If you take the New Testament epistles, sometimes there are messages addressed to men. Sometimes messages addressed to women. The groups are distinguished in ministry, but they're never divided. And I'm walking out just now on a plank of thin ice. And you'll probably hear the ice begin to crack when I get out there. But we'll do our best to swim and not to sink. Sometimes you have address given to young women and you have address given to young men. Sometimes matters that are more appropriate to older believers and sometimes matters for younger believers. And they are distinguished in an epistle, but they're never divided. What's the young people's epistle in the New Testament? I haven't discovered it yet. 
No. You see, there are different groups in the assembly. Oh, that's a beautiful thing, isn't it? Sheep and lambs. The Lord Jesus said twice, feed my lambs. Twice, feed my sheep. Once, feed my lambs. But you say we put the emphasis on the lambs. We would say twice, feed the lambs. Look after the young people. No, the Lord said feed the sheep. Twice, feed the lambs. Tend the lambs. Just once. All I'll say, dear brethren, is this. It's one of the wonders of assembly life that older believers, younger believers, male and female, can all be together. The energy of youth and the experience of mature years one feeding into the other. The older not criticizing the younger. The younger not criticizing or sidelining the older. But a bending, a, bl a blending and a bringing together. And I'm uncomfortable. I'm uncomfortable. That's as far as I say it. I'm uncomfortable with any situation that divides the age groups. Either by age or by gender. I'm just slightly, and that's an understatement, I'm more than slightly uncomfortable because the design of the wise master builder, the building blocks of assembly life seen in those various pluralities that I have mentioned, plus the plurality of the different groups all together in the same flock, all together in the same building, all working in the same field, just like the field of Boaz. The young men and the young women and the overseer and the stranger all cooperating and making their own distinct contribution. And can I say to sisters, single sisters, there's a place in the assembly for you. You have only to go through the New Testament. Where? 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 They ever, they were ever able to gather enough information on the basis of the New Testament, to say that the Apostle Paul was a male chauvinist, or that he was a misogynist, well, I do not know what books they were reading. Because here's a man who complimented sisters. Here's a man who appreciated Priscilla and Aquila. Persis, Trophida, Trophosa, single sisters, don't you feel to be sidelined? You have a con I'll tell you this, no matter where I go in any country, I take a look at just sisters. And by their presence and their godly demeanor, I can tell you they add to the atmosphere of any meeting. Don't be discouraged, dear sisters, and think that your contribution is negligible. And especially younger sisters, if you just pardon a word for me, I'll not be talking much about your dress. I'll not be too severe. But I notice there's a little thing that's happening. You see, out there, to make themselves impressive and to make an impact, they have to paint their faces. And they paint their fingers. And they paint their feet. Well, it's a very colorful form of human existence. And I'm a little bit concerned that the same colorful Christianity is coming in amongst us. And some are bringing in some bright, well, it's becoming very rainbow. A rainbow experience now. No, dear young sister, you have a contribution to make to God's assembly as a woman. And you don't need the powder. And you don't need the paint. And you don't need the polish. And you don't need the plastic. Just be what you are by the grace of God, in the fear of God, with the Word of God, displaying godliness. And you're very coming into the company. And you're gathering with the saints, silently taking your place. I tell you, that will be a voice, not only to men, but a voice to angels 
as well. And the Bible never says that sisters should be silent. And the Bible never says that sisters should have their head covered. Never. The Bible says the woman should be silent. And it says for this cause a woman she covers her head, not because she's a sister, she's a woman. And God gave her a place of helpership. And in submission and silence, she displays an obedience, a recognition of all that God has established, I say, that glorifies his name and satisfies his heart. The genders and the groups and the different glories that are seen, just the plurality of these things. What about the gifts? Well, you might have expected that I would mention that earlier. The gifts in the assembly. Isn't that another marvelous thing? The diversity in the distribution of gifts which God has made. I'm speaking now primarily. There are serving gifts. And our dear sisters have many avenues of service, opportunities, open doors in that area. Our brethren with their speaking gifts. And a diversity of gifts. And there are no clones. There are no copies. I'm, I, I'm, I just, let me, Brother Jack, as I call him, he take this bit out of the tape. Take the whole thing out for her. But take this bit out especially. Let me speak to ordinary younger brethren. You don't need to copy your favorite preacher. Forget about it. Forget about copying his antics. You don't need to twist your leg the way he twists his leg. Or wave his hand the way, you might want to copy me, but the rest, forget about them. Just be yourself and make your own contribution. And you'll discover after a little while that you have, you know, actually, just in case you hadn't noticed that I have a ministry and there's not another brother in the world has a ministry like it. <laughs> it's a small little ministry, but God has given it to me just to be mine. And as soon as I merge and move out of the little sphere that he has appointed, I lose impact. I'll not be doing anything, but just to keep the ministry that he, for you, you're the very same. And in the meeting, you don't give out your favorite hymn. I know that you love what a friend we have in Jesus, but that's not suitable for the remembrance meeting. And you don't just read your favorite psalm, but you say, how do I know when to exercise my gift? And I know that you say, you don't need a gift in worship. We leave that just now. How do I know when to contribute? Well, you ask, does it, does it coordinate does it fit in? Does it cooperate? Does it contribute? Does it advance the meeting? Or am I just throwing in some little favorite of mine that upsets the whole business? No. God has given no one-man ministry. It's not all wrapped up in the skin of one person. Thank God for the diversity of gift. And here we are today. And if in every assembly, the gift of all the gift which God has given was being fully employed. I believe that each assembly would become a place of spiritual industry where the work would be done with a distribution of tasks and where every gifted person would be making his or her con No one would be overworked. No one would be on strike, cooperating, coordinating, and cultivating and just a beautiful display of body life in assembly testimony where God has established a plurality and a diversity and his wisdom. If he had given all the gifts to one man, no matter how good he was, we'd get tired listening to him. But he hasn't done that. 
He has given a wide distribution. Thank God for His marvelous wisdom and for the magnanimity of His grace. And what about the giving? The giving. Not about the gifts, the giving. There's a diversity there. You don't all give the same thing. I happened to pass by a church not too very far from here the other day, and I noticed they put up on the board how much each person gave. It was a church building in the sense of an institutionalized denominational building. And the contribution of each person. Now the Apostle Paul says, let every man lay by and store. So each man's involved. There's a, but he says there'll be one gift. And when that one gift was put into the hands of the Apostle Paul, that, he said, it's a sacrifice. It's fellowship. It's a ministry. It's a grace. It's one gift. But he said there were many givers. And he said, when that gift is put into my hand, he said, I have no idea how much each Christian gave. So there's a diversity of contributors. And yet there's a singularity of a gift that was carried in Second Corinthians to the Gentile churches. And it's still the same. God says, let every man give according to his ability. So that no one's embarrassed. No one feels himself to be under pressure to give more than he is able. No embarrassment, there's no extortion, and there's no necessary equality. Not everyone giving the same. God has left room, even in our, in our financial contributions, for a plurality, a diversity. And the whole thing comes together in a great unity. What about the diversity of government? It would be a good idea, wouldn't it, do you think, to have assembly headquarters in New Jersey? I could nominate the president. That would be a fine thing. What about the assembly headquarters in Northern Ireland? I have a fair idea where the capital would be. What about assembly headquarters in Angola? Never worked. God said out of a plurality, not only of guides in one assembly, but he said each assembly, an assembly there, four miles across, three miles here, ten miles down, each one assembly will have its own government responsible to the risen Lord. And that assembly will not have jurisdiction over the rest. He said there'll be a plurality in governments. That will keep, that will keep from any replication of the papacy. And I'm speaking carefully and all of that. That will keep from any institutionalized, denominationalized organization with a bishop or a capital church. God has pre prevented all of that because in the architecture of assembly testimony, God has incorporated a number of protective pluralities. And may God help us to observe them for His glory and for the advancement of testimony. Young Christian. I know that you think it's just going to church. It's just keeping some kind of a movement going. Not at all. It's contributing to testimony for the honor of the Lord Jesus. There's nothing like it. Listen, don't take your pattern for assembly life from your local testimony. Because it will have weaknesses. Take your pattern from the Bible. And if the testimony that you're associated with doesn't reflect the pattern of the Bible... You get on your knees and never stop praying until things have changed and God's pattern is reflected for Christ's glory and for the edification of the saints and for the extension of the kingdom in every locality. May God bless this little basic, very basic meditation. The wisdom of God
in the plural building blocks of assembly architecture. Thank you for your good attention.